Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Chris Williams is engineering, James Blend, producer of today's show. Looking forward to a conversation in our second hour with Don Marie Perez. She is executive director of Stand Up Girl. She'll tell us about this extraordinary outreach that uh, this pro-life outreach that literally ministers all over the globe. It really is fascinating. And we'll talk with her about that when she joins us in the second hour of today's program. Also in the final segment, I want to let you know about a couple of great opportunities for entertainment, but edifying entertainment. C.S. Lewis, the movie is opening in theaters today, runs through the 18th, but not every day between now and then. So you can check that out at the website, um, cslewismovie.com, I believe. Also, the movie Sabina, Tortured for Christ, the Nazi Years, is in theaters November 8th through the 10th. You can learn more at sabinamovie.com. That's Warm Brand's uh, wife, Tortured for Christ, and also the DVD, um, which is called Genesis, Paradise Lost, God Made Everything and It Was Good. It captures the first week of creation with cutting-edge cinematography and biblical accuracy, bringing the first chapter of the book of Genesis to life. That is being released on DVD by Answers in Genesis. You can check that out <clears throat> Excuse me, on their website. We'll talk more about it in the last segment of today's program. So... Uh, lot to talk about today. Well, today, of course, is the day after Election Day, and a lot is being made about what the election means, uh, who won where and why and under what circumstances, uh, historically tells us something about the midterm elections. Now, there's no literal tie between what happened yesterday and what will happen in um, the midterm elections, but it does give us something of a forecast, and so pundits have looked to it uh, over the years. A couple of uh, big issues. Former business executive Glenn Youngkin defeated Democrat Terry McAuliffe in the Virginia governor's race on Tuesday. He's the only or I should say he's only the fourth Republican candidate to win the office in the past 40 years in what used to be a solidly red state. By 9.15 p.m., he appeared to be well on his way to thwarting McAuliffe's attempt to retake the office he left in 2018, with a strong showing in both rural and suburban areas. After midnight, though, Youngkin's margin had shrunk to 51 percent of the vote to McAuliffe's 48.3 percent, with about 95 percent of precincts reporting. He had about 1.66 million votes to McAuliffe's 1.58 million Dave Wasserman, editor of the Cook Political Report, called the race early for Youngkin, as did the Republican Governors Association. Media outlets, however, waited until, well, after midnight. McAuliffe-Youngkin um, race tightened as it was uh, driven by culture wars. At least that's kind of the way of minimizing the concerns of uh, the genuine concerns of parents. Anyway, disagreement with regard to public schools across the nation, including in Virginia's populous, affluent and liberal Loudoun and Fairfax counties, both suburbs of Washington. The long story short, Youngkin won. Well, in the race for lieutenant governor, former state delegate um, Winsome Sears, the GOP candidate, led the Democrat state uh, uh, Delhala Ayala by 51 percent to 49 percent with 95 percent of the uh, precincts reporting. Sears, also a former Marine, uh, will be the first black woman to win a statewide office in Virginia. She said that's a fact, but that is not the point. She said that's not what I was attempting to achieve. Well, in the um, race for attorney general, Virginia's third statewide office, state uh, delegate Jason Mayares, a Republican narrowly led Democratic incumbent, Mark Herring, 
who was seeking a third term, 50 percent, 50.8 percent to 49.2 percent. So in Virginia, it was in these three races, a Republican sweep. Now, some are suggesting that tells you something about the midterm elections, that the Republicans will unseat a significant number of Democrats in both the House and the Senate. And while that may be true and historically, it's not uncommon uh, for the uh, uh, Democrat or the Republican occupying the White House and predominant in the House and Senate to be overturned in the next midterm election. And we'll have to wait and see who actually votes and what the outcome is. But that's the speculation. Winsome Sears, as I mentioned, is Virginia's next lieutenant governor. She made history as the first black woman to win statewide office there. She's a former member of the Virginia House of Delegates. She defeated uh, the Democrat, the current House member. The poll uh, closed at seven. The decision uh, desk uh, website called the lieutenant governor's race at about 843. And uh, it was an historic moment. But again, she didn't want to make it. So she ran because she believed she had something to offer the state. And coming to Jamaica, I think she was six years old. Her father came here and earned his citizenship. Uh, They loved the country. And that was her motivation for running. In other races, Minneapolis voters on Tuesday rejected a progressive plan to do away with the city's police department and replace it with a vaguely defined Department of Public Safety, which would not to have been required to employ an actual police officer of any kind. Well, the charter amendment failed with about 56 percent of the voters rejecting the proposal and preliminary results. It's the most direct referendum yet on the left's post-George Floyd anti-police message. So that failed. Um, Minneapolis residents overwhelmingly rejected the measure to replace the city's uh, department. Voters rejected Uh, by a significant enough margin that it was a victory. The measure proposed to alter the Minneapolis city charter to completely eliminate the existing police department and replace it with a Department of Public Safety that would combine public safety functions through a comprehensive public health approach. I like the police. We need the police. Minneapolis residents Wynn Weaver, who uh, only voted to oppose the measure, told the Star Tribune. Another city resident said defunding the police would be unwise Democratic Representative Ilhan Omar in Minnesota, Attorney General Keith Ellison endorsed the amendment, while Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry joined Senators Amy Klobuchar and Tina Smith in opposing it. The bottom line, however, is the voters rejected the idea. Well, in a campaign featuring two candidates with black uh, with backgrounds in law enforcement, Democrat Eric Adams defeated Republican Curtis Sliwa on Tuesday to become the next mayor of New York. The Associated Press called that race for Adams at about 920 p.m. shortly after the polls closed. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the more significant races of this election, yesterday being Election Day. And we'll also take a look at some of the uh, the headlines beyond the election. So stay with us. Also coming up in the second hour, we're going to talk about Stand Up Girl with Don Marie Perez, its executive director. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're looking at some of the election news from yesterday's vote. Well, the New Jersey governor's race between Governor Phil Murphy, a Democrat fighting for a second term, and his Republican opponent, Jack Ciotarelli, was uh, shockingly close in the early hours of Wednesday morning. It was just called moments ago. The governor managed to maintain his seat. The Democrat, Governor Phil Murphy. Murphy came out to speak just before 1230 a.m., 
as uh, his opponent held a lead of 50 percent, 50.1 percent to the governor's 49.2 percent with 80 percent of the vote in. When every vote is counted and every vote will be counted, we hope to have a celebration. Well, he is having that celebration now. Well, the House GOP campaign arm is now targeting an additional 13 Democratic House seats ahead of the 2022 midterms after Republicans had a number of surprising successes on Election Day yesterday, including a win for Republican Glenn Youngkin in the Virginia gubernatorial election. The National Republican Congressional Committee now has its sights set on the uh, seats of Representatives Graves Stanton of Arizona, Ed uh, per- Perlmuter of Colorado and several others. The new additions bring the total to 70 House Democrats who will be targeted ahead of the 2022 midterms based on the outcome of today's election. Well, taking a flashback after the 2017 New Jersey, Virginia Democrat wins, uh, the networks were gushing over uh, lifting the liberal spirits. Well, they were a little quieter this time around after the 2017 New Jersey and Virginia elections where Democrats swept to victory. The networks the next day delighted in this stinging rebuke to then President Trump that lifted the spirits of Democrats, they said. Four years later, on Wednesday, as Republicans won in deep blue Virginia and hold a lead in the very deep blue New Jersey, which has now been called ABC, CBS, NBC again tried to focus on results and tie them back to Donald Trump. It was not on the ballot. He's not in the White House. And let's see, after the the um, election in 2017, where um, the Democrats swept this whole thing, Good Morning America's John Carl taunted, well, I think the lesson for Republicans here is the way to win elections now is to run away from Donald Trump. It was a win for Republicans who stayed away from Donald Trump. Very interesting because McAuliffe suggested that Donald Trump's name was on the ballot. You just have to have spectral lighting to see it. Nonetheless, well, today, the U.S. Senate rejected H.R. 4, another scheme that would hand control of the federal elections to unelected federal bureaucrats. Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski supported the power grab and um, was an exception. H.R. 4 is a last ditch effort by the Democrats to put the federal government in charge of state elections by giving unelected bureaucrats in Washington new powers to undermine state laws. State lawmakers should be able to create laws that make it easy to vote and hard to cheat without intimidation from the federal government. And that effort failed today in the Senate. Well, as I mentioned, Republican Glenn Youngkin won the Virginia governor's race in a shocking victory over the former Democrat Governor Terry McAuliffe. Youngkin shocked the political world in Virginia, defeating the former governor. Youngkin ran a disciplined campaign. He focused on taxes, crime and holding public schools accountable to parents. McAuliffe spent much of his firepower the past couple of months trying to link Youngkin to the former president, Donald Trump. McAuliffe also nationalized the race, campaigning with President Biden, Vice President Harris, former President Obama and other top Democrats in an uh, unsuccessful attempt to boost his fortunes. Two months ago, McAuliffe held a mid uh, single digit lead in a state that Biden won by 10 points over Trump just a year ago. But Young can erase the former governor's advantage in the closing stretch of the campaign. In other developments, the president and president, uh, former President Obama and Vice President Harris all struck out for the McAuliffe uh, campaign in Virginia. Critical race theory was a top factor for 25 percent of Virginia voters, while 72 percent called it important. Virginia moms and dads say the Youngkin victory is a win for parental rights and Virginia governor-elect Youngkin's economic plan includes lower taxes and less regulation. 
The New Jersey Republican made the uh, the race there a race against the favored Democrat incumbent. Uh, the race was uh, was not called until just moments ago. The two waged tense campaigns with Murphy presenting himself as a solid progressive. His opponent tried to paint Murphy as out of touch with the average voter and was critical of his leadership during the COVID-19 epidemic. He did, however, fail to uh, win over the uh, incumbent who was seeking a second term. Governor Murphy positioned himself as the canary in a coal mine for Democrat policy, saying we're doing here what they're discussing in Washington. The New Jersey governor's election was supposed to be a blowout. No one expected this close race. Well, the Braves win the World Series thanks to power and pitching in Game 6. The Atlanta Braves fought through injuries, a tough National uh, League East, a stacked playoff bracket, and the best team in the American League. But on Tuesday night, they called themselves World Series champions. For the first time since 1995, the Braves won baseball's Fall Classic with a Game 6 route of the Houston Astros 7-0. to The Braves won the series 4-2. to in other developments, the Braves' pennant win prompted GOP's Brian Kemp to jab at Stacey Abrams and Major League Baseball over their Atlanta All-Star snub. Late innings equal late nights as the World Series games lengthen. Well, in the New York City mayoral election, Democrat Eric Adams soundly defeated Republican Curtis Sliwa. A Southern California city would have the highest minimum wage in the country under a new policy. The CDC now says prior COVID-19 infection does not protect as well as the vaccine against reinfection. The California School Board votes to bring police back to school campuses following the misguided defund the police movement. And U.S. stock buybacks head for records in the third quarter. Zillow has quit the home flipping business, citing their inability to forecast prices. And Deere employees rejected a contract offer and will stay on strike. The president falsely claims wages are rising faster than inflation in the U.S., Sadly, that's not the case. And a shocker, the New Jersey governor's race was too close to call for most of the day, was called later this evening. And the Minneapolis anti-police referendum failed. Texas Governor Abbott is working to protect children from pornography in school. From that story, the Texas Republican governor uh, sent a letter to Dan Troxell, executive director of the Texas Association of School Boards on Monday, demanding the state protect children from being exposed to pornography or other inappropriate content in Texas public schools. Now, when you think about it, how absurd is it that the governor of the state has to call out pornography in the schools? We're not talking about on the Internet and people trying to capture the... We're talking about schools and what they're making available to kids. It really is a shocking development. From the governor, calling on the Texas Association of School Boards to shield children from pornography, inappropriate content in Texas public schools. Representative Jeff Kaysen says, my statement regarding sexually explicit material in our Texas school libraries stands. Well, Democrats lost the majority in the Virginia House with at least five seats flipped. Enos Cantor continues to hammer China. From that story, Boston Celtics backup center continues to ignore NBA boundaries by speaking out against China and their reprehensible human rights violations. Last month, he declared support for free Tibet and bashed Chinese President Xi Jinping as a brutal dictator. One week later, he ranted against one of the NBA's biggest sponsors in Nike for profiting off China's slave labor. From the player himself, ruthless dictator Xi Jinping and the cultish Chinese Communist Party, hear me loud and clear. Hong Kong will be free to all Hong Kongers. 
uh, watching, please know that I stand with you. You are not Chinese. You are not British. You are Hong Kongers. From Breitbart, he writes, China responded to Cantor's latest broadside by blacking out streams, uh, uh, streaming video of Boston Celtics games and blocking Internet searches for Cantor's name. The NBA has been, uh, to put it charitably, quietly supportive of Cantor for speaking his mind, at least thus far. According to the New York Times, they're reporting that some Thanksgiving dinners will have vaccination requirements, mostly for people who believe what the New York Times is feeding them. Well, Iowa Governor Reynolds passed a bill allowing fired, unvaccinated workers to collect unemployment. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, a Republican, signed a bill on Friday allowing constituents to obtain unemployment benefits if they're fired from their job for refusing to take the Wuhan coronavirus vaccine. Reynolds, who is vaccinated against COVID-19, has been a vocal opponent of mandates surrounding the virus, such as vaccine mandates and school mask mandates. She signed the bill on Friday after the Iowa legislature passed it in a one-day special session and went into effect immediately. From Iowa governor, notwithstanding any other provisions of this chapter, to the contrary, an individual who is discharged from employment for refusing to receive a vaccination against COVID-19 as defined in Section 686D-2 shall not be disqualified from benefits on account of such discharge. From uh, Governor Reynolds, today I'm announcing that the state of Iowa is joining a federal lawsuit to challenge President Biden's unprecedented use of government to force every employee of every federal contractor in America, including thousands of Iowans, to take a vaccine against their wishes. And Mike Rose says we've lost our work ethic. The Dirty Jobs host was responding to a question about the labor shortage. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, just winding through some of the day's headlines. And a reminder, we are going to be talking with Don Marie Perez. She's executive director of Stand Up Girl, a tremendous pro-life ministry, when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the president's reconciliation bill on social welfare and climate change is estimated to kill 103,000 jobs and raise taxes on 80 percent of the U.S. You can read more about that in The Washington Times. The CDC director signed off on the Pfizer vaccine for children 5 to 11. And Joe Biden, Barack Obama and Kamala Harris all strike out for Terry McAuliffe in Virginia. Facebook plans to shut down and delete its face recognition system, and the Pentagon is rattled by the Chinese military push on multiple fronts. A judge says Chicago can't enforce the vaccine mandate on police officers while Lori Lightfoot fumes. Over 2,000 New York City firefighters are on sick leave as the vaccine mandate kicks in. A Wisconsin investigation uncovers potential tip of a voting fraud iceberg. The Federalist has more on that. In more Turkey Day trouble, American Airlines canceled more flights, the total topping 2,300. Revenge is a dish best served cold. The Atlanta Braves, whose all-star game was stolen from them, demolished the Astros to win the first World Series in decades. We're talking about locations of where the event took place. And in a bit of humor, a father informs his daughter of a new tax on unrealized Halloween candy gains. On this day in history, 1839, the first opium war between China and Britain breaks out. 1911, the Chevrolet Motor Company is founded in Detroit by Louis Chevrolet and William Durant. The company would be acquired by General Motors in 1918. 
1936, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt wins a landslide election victory over Republican challenger Alfred Alf Landon. 1957, the Soviet Union launches Sputnik 2, the second man-made satellite into orbit on board a, is a dog named Leica who would be sacrificed in the experiment. 1964, President Lyndon Baines Johnson soundly defeats Republican Barrett Goldwater to win a White House term in his own right. 1979, five Communist Workers' Party members are killed in a clash with heavily armed Ku Klux Klansmen and neo-Nazis during an anti-Klan protest in Greensboro, North Carolina. 1986, the Iran-Contra affair comes to light as Ash Shirah, a pro-Syrian Lebanese magazine, first breaks the story of U.S. arms sales to Iran. 1992, in Illinois, Democrat Carol Mosley Braun, she becomes the first black woman to be elected to the United States Senate, defeating Republican Richard S. Williamson. 1992, Democrat Bill Clinton is elected the 42nd president of the United States, defeating President George Herbert Walker Bush. 1994, on this day in history, Susan Smith of Union, South Carolina, is arrested for drowning her two young sons, Michael and Alex, nine days after claiming the children had been abducted. 1997, the Supreme Court lets stand California's groundbreaking Proposition 209, which bans race and gender preference in hiring and school admissions. 2014, 13 years after the 9-11 terrorist attack, the resurrected World Trade Center opens for business, marking an emotional milestone for both New Yorkers and the nation. And finally, on this day in history, 2017, Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl, who walked away from his post in Afghanistan and triggered a search that left some of his comrades severely wounded, is spared a prison sentence by a military judge in North Carolina. Then President Trump blasted the decision as a complete and total disgrace. Well, an analysis by the Tax Foundation, it's a nonpartisan fiscal watchdog, estimates that the president's $1.75 trillion expansion of the federal safety net could kill more than 103,000 jobs over the next decade and add $750 billion to the federal deficit. The estimate rather, is based on a thorough analysis of the White House's spending framework and the corresponding 1,684-page bill text released by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi Experts from the Tax Foundation say the proposal would fall far short of White House promises. We estimate that the House bill would reduce long-term economic output by nearly 0.4 percent and eliminate about 103,000 full-time equivalent jobs in the United States, the experts wrote. It would also reduce average after-tax incomes for the top 80 percent of taxpayers over the long run, end quote. Well, the analysis differs strongly from the rosy picture that is being painted in Washington when the president announced the deal last week. It's a framework, he said, that will create millions of jobs, grow the economy, invest in our nation and our people, turn the climate crisis into an opportunity, and put us on a path not only to compete, but to win the economic competition for the 21st century against China and every other major country in the world. Administration officials say all of the spending programs proposed by the framework are fully funded. The White House estimates that the tax hikes included in the package would generate more than $1.995 trillion in revenue over the next 10 years. The Tax Foundation disagrees. The overall price tag of the bill is likely to change as Democratic uh, Democrats hammer out the package and changes are possible. 
Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer, New York Democrat, announced on Tuesday a new push to include provisions allowing Medicare to negotiate down the cost of prescription drugs. Fixing prescription drug pricing has consistently been a top issue for Americans year after year, he said. Today, we've taken a massive step forward in helping alleviate that problem by empowering Medicare directly to negotiate prices and make sure our country's drug price system benefits patients, not corporations, end quote. Well, under the agreement, Medicare would be given the ability to negotiate the price of 10 life-saving drugs starting in 2023. The list of drugs eligible for negotiation would increase over time. Seniors also also would get a rebate for the price of drugs that rise higher than the rate of inflation. The deal further caps out-of-pocket costs for Medicare beneficiaries to $2,000 per year. If the prescription drug proposal winds up being included in the final package, it's estimated to send the overall price tag soaring. Democrats are also eyeing a costly restoration of the state and local tax, or SALT, deduction, which primarily benefits wealthy individuals in blue states. They haven't said if the extra spending would require further tax increases to help pay for the bill. Well, at the moment, the president is proposing a series of taxes on businesses and the wealthy, including a 15 percent minimum rate on corporate taxes and a corresponding 15 percent surcharge on foreign earnings. A 1% surcharge is to be levied on corporate uh, stock buybacks. The White House estimates that the uh, proposed tax would generate about $800 billion. Economists from the Tax Foundation disagree. They say the revenue estimates are off and the bill would add more than $750 billion to the federal deficit over the next decade. Accounting for the reduced size of the economy resulting from the tax increases, we estimate the House bill would raise in total about $615 billion in revenue over the next decade, they wrote. We estimate that the bill would result in $752 billion in accumulated deficits, leading to an increase in payments to foreign owners of the national debt. The Tax Foundation also said the president's proposed tax hikes would cripple the U.S. economy as it attempts to rebound from the COVID-19 pandemic. Its analysis shows that the president's 15 percent minimum tax on corporate profits would cost Americans more than 25,000 jobs alone. Apart from corporate tax hikes, the White House is proposing a menu of taxes on individuals. The president is backing a 5 percent wealth tax on those with adjusted gross incomes of $10 million. The figure jumps to 8 percent on adjusted gross income over 25 million. I can't think of a single time when the middle class has done well, but the wealthy haven't done very well, Mr. Biden. Biden said, I can think of many times, including now, when the wealthy and the super wealthy do very well and the middle class don't do well, end quote. Well, despite the rhetoric, tax foundation economists say the provisions would affect all workers by killing more than 29,000 jobs. The White House hasn't responded to this analysis. And um, one of the things uh, Senator Manchin is holding out for is for the Congressional Budget Office to rate the plan as it stands now. The report was released one day after Senator Manchin uh, accused his colleagues of engaging in budget gimmicks to hide the true cost of the spending bill. As more of the real details outlined, what I see are shell games and budget gimmicks that make the real cost of the so-called $1.75 trillion bill estimated to be twice as high, he said. That's a recipe for economic crisis. None of us should ever misrepresent to the American people what the real cost of legislation is. Now, some are speculating, given the outcome of the election Yesterday, which were announced today, that there may be more moderate Democrats who jump on board with Manchin and Cinema. We'll see. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from Don Marie Perez. She's executive director of Stand Up Girls. She'll join us about quarter after the hour. Well, Joe Biden in Scotland for the U.N.'s latest climate summit, uh, known as the COP26, uh, after his, um, his well, speech and press conference and all of that is back home. Um, and the uh, uh, in the process, he attacked U.S. oil but begged OPEC for help. And that's got the, a lot of people a bit irked. Um, by the way, the summit is taking place or took place in Glasgow. The president is staying in Scotland's capital, Edinburgh, which is roughly an hour away. To get to the summit, he had to be traveling in a motorcade of 20 vehicles, no emissions, um, we're sure, at the climate summit. Well, in any case, on Tuesday, he delivered his methane plan. It includes an implementation of new environmental protection agency regulations on oil and natural gas companies. It's aimed at forcing those companies to spend millions of dollars in uh, efforts to ensure that methane natural gas emissions from older existing oil wells are captured, as well as the introduction of new leak prevention rules. And while regulations for capturing methane emissions already exist for all new drilling operations, this regulation forces the older wells to meet new standards for leak prevention and capture. Well, climate alarmists dubiously claim that uh, methane natural gas emissions are responsible for a third of all human-caused global warming. Of this latest regulation, oil lobbyists... uh, uh, say really it's just a tax on natural gas, which is counterproductive. Well, the president is hoping his action will lead other nations into signing on to the gambit. However, some of the world's biggest methane natural gas emitters are China and Russia. The leaders of those two nations didn't bother attending the confab. Uh, also, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin have espre- expressed rather little interest in cutting their own energy production and undermining their economic growth simply to pacify uh, declarations of Western cities. Well, once again, the president um, uh, proved himself to be the enemy of American energy. He killed the Keystone XL pipeline. He instituted prohibitive regulations on fracking and offshore dwell- drilling, and now he's imposing new regulations for methane natural gas emissions. Meanwhile, once again, he begged OPEC nations to increase their oil production as a means of controlling spiking gas prices here at home and offsetting the growing costs during the mounting energy crisis. In a letter sent to the government accounting office, three Republican senators highlighted the climate hypocrisy, writing, we write to you today requesting that the U.S. Government Accountability Office collect and provide information to Congress on the total amount of carbon emissions required to transport President Biden the 13 U.S. political appointees and any and all administration supported support staff who attend the conference. The three senators, Johnny um, Ernst, Tom Cotton and Shelley Moore Capito, further observed while President Biden continues to target American energy with harmful policies, he and his staff continue to rely on fossil fuel transportation. In the interest of transparency, we would like to an answer to understand the total amount of emissions linked to the trans- transportation to and from COP26 for the Biden administration officials. In other words, the Republicans are well aware that he is essentially saying, do as I say, not as I do, which isn't uncommon for those who make big decisions about such things. It's not climate change that is an existential threat to America and our way of life. It's Biden and his liberty-infringing climate agenda, they went on to say. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments uh, in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin today, a case that will likely be the Second Amendment uh, Supreme Court case of this decade. 
Uh, Currently, if you are a law-abiding citizen, New York State won't issue you a permit without what they call proper cause. This means they can arbitrarily deny your right to carry a gun for protection, even if you have a clean record. Not only is that unconstitutional, at least that's what they're Uh, The court will decide, but it's also seriously troubling considering that 97 percent jump in shootings and 45 percent increases in murder in New York City last year with fewer um, law enforcement officers to handle it. Well, New York State is in clear violation of the Second Amendment, uh, proponents argue, which explicitly states that the rights to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The amicus brief that was uh, uh, filed by Gun Owners of America uh, was part of. Uh, the um, the things being considered by uh, the Supreme Court. The amicus brief says there should be no room for the federal government, state, cities, or lower courts to apply balancing tests to allow for infringements of the rights to keep and bear arms. Well, in the hearing, it's... Um, it was uh, seemed clear the Supreme Court's questioning during the oral arguments uh, in the case showed that several justices have strong reservations about the state's restrictive regulations for getting concealed carry permits. The case um, is potentially the biggest gun rights case to go before the court in more than a decade. So the outcome will be very interesting. New York Solicitor General Barbara Underwood noted that under current rules, the state has the discretion to evaluate a person's reason for applying for a permit as an applicant has to show proper cause for needing one. Underwood pointed out that the more specific a reason a person gives in terms of facing a threat of danger, the better their chances. Why isn't it good enough to say I live in a violent area and I want to defend myself? Just as Brett Kavanaugh asked his uh, Kavanaugh's question came after Justice Samuel Alito gave a hypothetical of someone who gets out of uh, of work late at night and has to walk uh, to or from a subway or bus station through a high crime neighborhood to get home. Alito noted that under the current law, the person would apply for a permit claiming he felt unsafe without citing a specific threat and be denied. That is, in general, right, Underwood admitted. How is that, that consistent with the core right of self-defense, Alito asked, stating that this is uh, at the core of the Second Amendment? Well, Kavanaugh suggested that one could cite statistics about crimes in one area, and Underwood said that the more specific the statistics are in an applicant's neighborhood or even block, uh, the better the applicant's chances would be. Well, despite the challenging uh, these challenging questions conservatives did indicate that it would be reasonable to have limits on where one could bring a concealed firearm well the court appeared to accept the state's arguments for continued individualized discretion to enforce sensitive place weapon restrictions in areas such as college campuses concert or sporting event venues and places where alcohol is served even attorney paul clement Taking the side of gun owners acknowledged that such restrictions could potentially be accepted. Uh, Dense population was a concept that was used to argue both sides. As Underwood said, there were less restrictions in less populated areas. Chief Justice John Roberts challenged the logic behind this and argued that these places there uh, in these places, there was less of a chance that a person would feel the need to get a gun for self-defense in highly populated urban areas. However, he said it seemed like. That's the last place a person could actually get the permit. Well, Underwood said that the history has been to regulate most strenuously in densely populated areas because they feature greater police presence and the deterrent of more people nearby. Speaking again of police, Underwood claimed that um, proliferating guns in areas with high police presence actually endanger officers because they may not know where shooters uh, are coming from. 
So this is a very significant case that the Supreme Court has taken up. Uh, Some of the important things to know about the high court's latest Second Amendment case, the case is about the right to carry firearms in public. Uh, As I mentioned, um, the case provides the Supreme Court with the opportunity to address a very important question it so far has declined to answer when the Second Amendment protects the right to bear arms. Does it mean a right to bear a handgun in public for purposes of self-defense? Also to um, listen for and look for in the decision that is now coming, good cause and um, may issue requirements have racist roots. That was one of the arguments made for the first 70 or so years after the Constitution was ratified. Americans um, undeniably maintained a general right to bear arms in public with perhaps some states authority to regulate the mode of carry. Well, a minority of states eventually prohibited or heavily regulated the act of carrying a concealed firearm in public. But no state completely eradicated an ordinary citizen's ability to carry some type of firearm in public in some manner without first having to seek permission from the government. Well, all white Americans enjoyed a right to bear arms in public. Laws heavily regulated the public carry of firearms uh, were likely um, all early forms of restrictive gun control reserved for the subjugation of slaves and other individuals who are or who were at the time legally considered as falling outside the people of the United States. Well, even after slavery was abolished and the 14th Amendment forbade race based gun restrictions, many southern states looked to racially neutral but highly discretionary gun control laws to effectively disarm black citizens. And so the argument being made is that this is a carryover from that period. A Florida Supreme Court case in 1941 provided some insight into just how blatantly and openly states use discretionary permit systems to deprive black Americans of their rights. The court overturned a white man's conviction for carrying a handgun in public without a permit in apparent violation of state law. And the justice said uh, nonchalantly explained the racist origins of the enforcement of the law in his concurring opinion. I don't have time to read it, but uh, that's one of the arguments that uh, was uh, made or is being considered. Also, public carry will not turn us into the Wild West. The proponent said that's not going to be the case. Many gun control advocates insist that if the Supreme Court strikes down good cause requirements, then the nation will be turned into the Wild West of um, gun control. In other words, the Second Amendment shouldn't protect a right to ordinary citizens to bear arms in their defense because ordinary citizens largely are incapable of acting in a reasonable manner when armed in public. Decades of plain data show, well, the opposite. Um, but these are the questions that the Supreme Court is considering, and hopefully the court will soon vindicate the um, American citizens currently deemed to have insufficient cause to exercise their constitutional rights uh, to bear arms, especially in a season, in a, a time when law enforcement is less and less uh, able to protect the general public. So that was heard in the Supreme Court earlier today. Well, coming up in the second hour of today's program, the Pentagon uh, says that China's nuclear stockpile is growing. And the Russian foreign minister said the U.S. uh, over the horizon cooperation, it's not really working out with a number of nations. We'll also talk with Don Marie Perez, executive director of Stand Up Girl. All of that coming up in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up this hour, we'll talk with Don Marie Perez. She is executive director of Stand Up Girl. It's an incredible website that's doing amazing things all across the globe. She'll join us in the next couple of segments. 
Well, a new scientific finding in the prestigious Lancet Infectious Diseases Journal blows a hole in the argument that workers need to get vaccinated to protect those around them. Well, the findings prove the uh, that forcing police and other public employees to get jabbed or lose their pay is, well, maybe not scientifically the best option. President Biden should retract his order to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to compel large employers to mandate vaccines. Well, the Journal reported on Thursday of last week that COVID-19 vaccines have minimal impact on preventing transmission of the Delta strain. Delta is the COVID strain currently causing over 99% of U.S. cases. Vaccines protect the people getting the shots from serious illness, but they don't stop the Delta variant from spreading to others. Well, don't get me wrong. Americans should choose to get vaccinated. And key word is choose. Those shots are not guaranteed against getting infected and spreading it to others. They provide significant protection against hospitalization and death for the person with the vaccine. Um, 90% or more. Well, choosing not to get vaccinated is choosing to risk your own life and not the the lives of others. The health risk to others is minimal. Most vaccines against polio, smallpox, measles and other diseases prevent infection and spread, but not COVID-19 vaccines. Again, according to Lancet Infectious Disease Journal. Now that the battle is against the Delta variant, they've become disease tamers rather than infection preventers. We'll tell that to Mayor de Blasio, who gave New York City employees until Monday to get at least one shot or be sent home without pay. As of Monday, 9,000 are on unpaid leave because they have refused the shot. 20 uh, FDNY uh, companies um, were shuttered because many of New York's bravest uh, refused to vaccinate. Police Commissioner Dermont Shea claims the mandate will not further diminish the number of New York's finest on the streets. That remains to be seen. Well, governors and mayors from Maine to Los Angeles are demanding that public employees and even nurses and doctors hail just um, months ago as heroes get vaxxed or go without a job. Maine Governor Janet Mills says just as vaccination defeated smallpox and vaccinated defeated uh, vaccination rather defeated polio, vaccination is the way to defeat COVID-19. Well, sorry, Governor, but you don't know what you're talking about. According to science, that's not the case. It will protect you if you are shot, if you have the vaccination, but not others. Just as politicians don't read the bills before voting on them, they don't keep up with science, but still want to tell the rest of us what to do. Well, the groundbreaking findings in Lancet show that fully vaccinated people who came down with COVID infected others in their household at the same rate. About 25 percent as unvaccinated people did at 23 percent. The vaccinated had just as much viral load in their upper respiratory tract, making them just as contagious. The findings show that vaccination alone is not enough to prevent people from being infected with the Delta variant and spreading it, the study's co-author says. Well, the British researcher also found that vaccinated people were only somewhat less likely to contract the virus at 25 percent compared with the unvaccinated at 38 percent. Well, that conflicts with Centers for Disease Control and Prevention data showing vaccinated are far less likely to contract COVID-19. We were led to believe that these breakthrough cases were a rare thing indeed. One thing is for sure, the science is uncertain on this, so government should not be using a heavy hand to impose mandates claiming to make workplaces safer. Meanwhile, the White House is pressing large companies to mandate vaccinations and calling on OSHA to enforce that policy with hefty penalties. The Build Back Better bill increases the penalties tenfold to as much as $700,000 per incident, 
or hazardous conditions threatening bankruptcy for all but the largest enterprises. The administration expects to publish the rules in the Federal Register in the coming days, affecting about two-thirds of the private sector workforce. Yet the new science undercuts OSHA's claim that unvaccinated people are a workplace hazard. So far, workplace mandates have been challenged at least 39 times in federal court with little success. But the new scientific evidence may change that. Well, we'll see if science is, in fact, ruling in this case. Lancet infectious diseases stress the urgency of improving current vaccines or developing new ones to actually protect against asymptomatic infections and onward transmission. Foolishly, the administration and others in Congress vilify the vaccine developer Moderna for making a profit and threaten to seize its patent. It's possible COVID will continue morphing into new variants requiring new vaccines from companies like Moderna. When you're fighting a war, in this case against a killer disease, attacking your own ammunition, well, it, uh, it's no way to win. So something to think about. We'll see if it's going to impact the ongoing debate. Well, China is building nuclear warheads at an accelerated pace and will have 1,000 by the end of the decade, according to the Pentagon's new China report. It was released on Wednesday after a two-month delay. Just a year ago in the last China report, the Pentagon had estimated China's nuclear arsenal to be that of the low 200s and would at least double over the next decade. The new report demonstrates China is expanding much more rapidly. And the question is, why? Well, the accelerating pace of the PRC's nuclear expansion may enable the PRC to have up to 700 deliverable nuclear warheads by 2027. The PRC likely intends to have at least 1,000 warheads by 2030, exceeding the pace and size of the Department of Defense projection in 2020. Well, the PRC, or the People's Republic of China, is how the Pentagon refers to China. Well, China is able to build up its nuclear stockpiles by increasing its capacity to produce and separate plutonium, the report says. The U.S. is currently um, uh, treaty-limited with Russia to deploy up uh, no more than 1,550 warheads, nuclear warheads. China is under no such restriction because they don't have any arms control treaties with any other country. China is building hundreds of new ICBM silos and is on the cusp of a large silo-based ICBM force expansion comparable to those undertaken by other major powers. The report went on to warn. Over the summer, U.S. intelligence detected the presence of a missile field and civilian satellite radar discovered some of them. The report says in 2020, China launched more than 250 ballistic missiles, exceeding its launch numbers for 2018 and 2019, despite COVID-19. A year ago, the last annual report to, to Congress, the Pentagon said China had amassed the biggest Navy in the world. It has since improved, according to the new annual report to Congress. In the near term, and I'm quoting, the plan will have the capability to conduct long-range precision strikes against land targets from its submarine and surface combatants using land attack cruise missiles, notably enhancing the PRC's global power projection capabilities. The report measures the growth of China's military in 2020 only. It doesn't account for China's growth this year. Uh, The report did not cover the recent hypersonic weapons tests from space, which caught U.S. intelligence by surprise. This newly released report didn't cover the following development in the field of hypersonic weapons, the first deployment of the advanced system that travels five times the speed of sound. But more importantly, according to experts, it doesn't travel in a predictable ballistic trajectory. In 2020, the PLARF 
uh, began to field its first operational hypersonic weapon system, the DF-17 hypersonic glide vehicle, capable of medium-range ballistic missiles, the report says. The U.S. military's top officer, General Mark Milley, uh, his call... Rather, he called the recent test of a Chinese hypersonic a very significant test. We're witnessing one of the largest shifts in global geostrategic power that the world has witnessed, Millie warned uh, NBC's Lester Holt at the Aspen Security Forum on Wednesday. If we, the United States military, do not uh, do a fundamental change to ourselves in the coming 10 to 15, 20 years, then we're going to be on the wrong side of a conflict. Milley later predicted a Chinese invasion of Taiwan is not likely in the next two years, but it is likely beyond that. The Pentagon's new China report has added a section on chemical and biological research, saying China has engaged in biological activities with potential dual-use applications, which raise concerns regarding its compliance with the Biological and Toxins Weapons Convention and the Chemical Weapons Convention as well. The report didn't touch on the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. A senior defense official said the Pentagon is leaving that that issue to the director of national intelligence. Milley recently said China's test of a hypersonic missile while orbiting the Earth was very close to a Sputnik moment. In an interview, um, Eldridge Colby, former deputy assistant secretary of defense for strategy, said it's not just China's development of hypersonic weapons that is concerning. It's Beijing's overall military advancements, including its nuclear force. The Sputnik moment was kind of this idea that we finally woke up to something. There are plenty of Sputnik moments we have before us, Colby said in an interview with Fox News and author of the new book, The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. It's Sputnik on steroids, he says. There is a sense that we can't be beaten, and that's just wrong. We can be beaten. And in fact, future generations may have to face decisions that were either unmade now or made too late in the future. Meanwhile, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, and Kyrgyzstan um, have all turned uh, down U.S. requests to use their territory for over-the-horizon counter-terror operations in Afghanistan. That's according to Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Uh, now, we were told that um, we were going to manage events in Afghanistan with no resources on the ground there with over-the-horizon ter- uh, counter-terror t- terror operations. Well, in an interview with a state-owned television channel, Lavrov said that despite those hurdles, he expected the U.S., due to its pushy nature, to continue trying to secure an agreement with regional uh, countries, adding that he understood the Pentagon has approached India in that regard. Pakistan said no, Lavrov said. Uzbekistan has publicly stated that its constitution does not provide for deployment of military bases in its territory. Kyrgyzstan has also publicly, through the mouth of the president, announced that they do not want this. Knowing the, and I'm quoting, pushy nature of the Americans, I do not rule out the possibility of them continuing to come up with the same proposal from different angles. I heard they are allegedly trying to persuade India to provide the Pentagon with certain capabilities on Indian territory. The Department of Defense and administration officials refer frequently to the importance of the -the over-the-horizon surveillance and counterterrorism capabilities in allowing the U.S. military to battle terrorists in Afghanistan following the president's complete withdrawal of U.S. forces in August. Well, after the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, uh, Colin Call, told the Senate Armed Services Committee last week that Afghanistan-based Islamist terrorism 
intend to attack the U.S. and could have the ability to do so within six months or a year. He said that conversations with Uzbekistan, Tajikistan and others regarding over the horizon cooperation were continuing. Well, Call and a senior U.S. Army general also imply that their testimony or in their testimony that attempts thus far to get support for countries in the region nearer to Afghanistan than the Gulf have yet to bear fruit. And if um, the foreign minister from Russia, um, Sergei Lavrov, is uh, accurate in his prediction that they're not likely to happen in the near future. This is very concerning because we have been told that the future there in Afghanistan and the possibility and potential of terrorist organizations regaining their strength is going to be managed, not in Afghanistan, not uh, just outside of Afghanistan, but from some location over the horizon that would be able to provide intelligence and access to the country when necessary, uh, should there be a need. That apparently, at least at this point, is not the case. I hope you're praying for the country, for our leaders, for the decisions they're making. They have significant implications, not just for this generation, but certainly for future generations as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Don Marie Perez. She is executive director of Stand Up Girl. We'll talk with her about this significant pro-life ministry and the impact it's having all over the globe. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm really looking forward to a conversation that's coming up in just the next couple of moments because I think the ministry we're going to be focusing on is one of the most innovative ministries with regard to the pro-life movement that I could think of, and I'm familiar with a lot of them. I'm going to be talking with Don Marie Perez. She is the executive director of Stand Up Girl. She is compassionate. She is innovative. She is a woman of faith and is making a real difference through this ministry and partnership with others to minister to young girls and women who are facing unplanned pregnancies. Now, imagine you're a young girl. You're facing an unplanned pregnancy. You're scared. You're confused. And you feel quite alone. You're getting pressure from your parents, your boyfriend, your friends and your teachers to have an abortion. Maybe you're even being threatened or being coerced into the idea of an abortion. Yet deep inside, you feel it isn't right. You want to keep your baby. So what do you do? Where do you go for help? Now, this is a scenario that uh, countless women face every single day. And here to help them is Stand up girl. We're not just talking about girls in Oregon or Washington or the United States for that matter, but girls all around the world. Now, Stand Up Girl is a 501c3 organization. They're dedicated to providing pregnant women and girls with alternatives to abortion and significant education about pregnancy and everything surrounding it. Once again, joining us is Don Marie Perez, who is executive director of Stand Up Girl. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Georgine. How are you? Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. It's been a very long time, and I'm just delighted to have you back with us. Now, for the sake of those who may not be familiar with Stand Up Girl, how did this um, this ministry, if you will, get started? Well, Stand Up Girl um, began in 2001, and it started with an idea from a gentleman named Paul Harmon, who was on the Board of Directors for Oregon Right to Life. And Paul wanted to come up with a way to meet um, the needs of Generation X. Studies had shown that more girls were involved with activities on their computer than watching TV for the first time ever. And so he came up with this idea to reach across to young women who might be in crisis through the Internet. 
And in 2001, that was kind of a wild idea for people to think that the internet would be a way to reach out to young women. And here we are 20 years later, and we're proven that the internet has been a great benefit for young women who are in crisis because we are able to get them the information they need right where they're at, wherever they are, on a mobile device, on their computer, on a tablet. We're there for them as soon as they get on there and they're looking for help and advice on the internet. So how do they find you? Uh, Say you're pregnant or you think you might be pregnant. Abortion is being brought up as a solution. And you as a, a pregnant young person, you don't really know what your mind is. You don't know much about abortion or pregnancy for that matter. How do they find you? Well, it could start as simple as them typing um, in on a search bar, I think I'm pregnant or pregnancy symptoms or pregnancy support, where can I go? And the goal for us is that standupgirl.com would show up on a first page search engine after someone's put in words like that. And then they would go to the website, which is standupgirl.com. And on that website, they're going to find the resources that they need. Um, to not only be educated about pregnancy and pregnancy symptoms, the development of their child, but also on life-affirming options for them and for their child. It really is a, a fascinating website because it has so much information and you anticipate the kinds of questions that are, quite frankly, common when a person is considering uh, whether or not they're pregnant, find out they're pregnant, and then aren't sure what they want to do and want to know what does abortion actually mean. Uh, talk to our listeners a little bit about um, what they find on the Stand Up Girl website. Well, one of our most um, visited links on our site is actually pregnancy symptoms. So young women are um, concerned that they might be pregnant or um, they've heard what some of the symptoms are. They can go on Stand Up Girl and look through the list of all the different symptoms that could be um, resulting in a pregnancy. And then as they read through those things, if some of those are ringing true for them, they have the option to um, chat with us. They can send us an email or they can go and get a text counseling session. And from that point, then we would help them get connected with someone in their neighborhood that will walk them through the process. They have someone there in person to help them. We're we're the conduit at the beginning of the process, but our goal is to get them connected with a life-affirming organization right in their own neighborhood that they can get connected to in person and get the assistance they need as they move forward, whether they are pregnant or not pregnant, or whether they choose to carry that child to term, whether they choose to parent the child, or maybe they choose that they want to um, have their child go into adoption. Or maybe a girl still decides that they are, want to have an abortion or they do have an abortion. And we are there from the beginning to the end with them to help them get the resources they need um, to make sure that they are in a stable situation as they move forward. Now, what you've just described is a huge task. As I mentioned, we're not just talking about the United States. We're talking about Europe and Africa and Asia. Uh, every part of the world, or for the most part, most parts of the world, have access to Stand Up Girl, how do you manage to make that connection in places far away? Because that, that's a huge undertaking so that these uh, these girls and, and young women uh, can connect with someone who can affirm the life of their child and help them to make decisions they can ultimately live with. Yes, um, it, it, is, it seems like a daunting task. And with the help of Heartbeat International, 
They are the largest pregnancy resource organization in the world right now. We are an affiliate of them. And what happens, and I'll use an example of a girl I'm working with right now. She came to us and she lives in Uganda. She's five months pregnant. She's been kicked out of the home that she lives in and her boyfriend has left her. She has no income and she's not sure what to do. So I connect with um, our resource person at Harping International and it's their international connections person. And they came back and gave me five different resources in Uganda and I contacted them and they are now in contact with this young girl and they're trying to help her get into a home, a maternity home that she can live in, find some resources for her to finish school. So she has a way to provide for her child. And that's just the beauty of Stand Up Girl being on the internet. Here we are. I'm helping a girl in Uganda that I've never met before, all because of the connections that we can make with other life-affirming organizations around the world. It really is incredible. I remember the first Stand Up Girl event I attended. This has been a couple of years ago. And part of the presentation was giving us some perspective of how many people we're talking about. Now, it's it's maybe easier for us to imagine there are are uh, young people all across the United States who need help and connecting them. But I was amazed at the number uh, of uh, people that you're reaching out to and have reached out to you in other countries. Can you give us some perspective on the numbers? Because it, it really is staggering when you consider this was birthed in a meeting uh, of Oregon Right to Life, uh, pro-life people, and it's now making a, a major impact. Yes. So, We average about 400,000 visitors to the website every month, and that's visitors from around the world. In 2020, um, looking back from January through October, we've already had 2.3 million visitors to our website, and social media is so huge right now. Um, We've had 13 million people interact with us on our Facebook page, Um, and you know, it just, those, those numbers seem so staggering when you try to put them in perspective. Um, for Stand Up Girl from 2001 through today, we've had 58 million people interact with our website around the world in 20 years. Um, and definitely God has blessed us to be able to have the right people in place to talk to them. One of our, um, our newer programs has been that we've been have, able to have um, chat sessions and basically text chat sessions with mm-hmm. women. They can text a certain number and we get into a conversation with them via um, chat sessions and text. And in September alone, we had almost 800 of those sessions occur. It's just amazing. It, it is. It's amazing. And just, uh, you know, I look at technology all the time, especially with all that we've gone through the last year and a half. The last thing I want to do is get on a computer and be in another Zoom meeting, but that's where these girls are at. And so for us to be able to have the resources available for them at their fingertips and get them the help that they need, um, it's just another way for us to say, you know, we're we're trying to walk the good walk, Lord, and another life is um, in the the balance right here and and get on our computer and we have the opportunity to give that um, young mom and that little child the opportunity to um, be born and have life and be turned around and affect the rest of the world by the things that you have planned for them. Yeah, oh, just amazing. 58 million. 
over the uh, the history of Stand Up Girl. We need to take a break here for just a moment, but we'll return. We're going to continue our conversation with Don Marie Perez. She's the executive director of Stand Up Girl, and they're doing significant pro-life work. I'm just so thrilled. This is born out of the Pacific Northwest, just down the road here in with Oregon Right to Life. Quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And I'm continuing my conversation with Don Marie Perez. She is the executive director of Stand Up Girl. It's a unique ministry that is reaching girls and uh, women all around the world who face unplanned pregnancies, who find that they might be pregnant. They're not sure. They have lots of questions. Stand Up Girl is there to address those questions in a way that is compassionate and pro-life. And it's just a thrilling thing to consider uh, what a small group of people uh, thought about coming to full fruition and bearing fruit all around the world. Now, let me ask you, what have you found are some of the more um, uh, successful ways of providing hope and courage to young women uh, who are abortion-minded and facing an unplanned pregnancy? Well, for us, um, the approach that we like to take is that we are trying to reach across to a girl who is abortion-minded. And so... Our goal, of course, is a life-affirming option for them, and we are a pro-life organization. But the way that we present ourselves is we are an organization here to help anyone. And so we try not to um, be overtly pro-life in the message that we're sending across our website, but as the girls are coming in and reading the information and learning about the development of their child and learning about, excuse me, what the possible outcomes are of what choice that they make. Um, we are, we're, we're guiding them towards a pro-life decision. And um, we have found that the first thing is just to really be a good listener. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of times the girls will have, a, there's a backstory to them being pregnant. It's not just as simple as, yes. you know, this happened and I'm pregnant. And there's other things that are involved in that. And that's why I really like the fact that we, um, make it a priority for us to work with other organizations because we could have a young girl who is pregnant now because she's involved in sex trafficking or a, we've had young girls that come to us that are pregnant because of incest or abuse in their family. And we have to um, be able to listen to hear what's really going on and then also be able to have the resources to get them connected with someone who can help them in the situation that they're in. Now, doing what you've just described requires an army of people who are prepared to listen and to help guide and provide some counsel uh, to these uh, these women. Who who answers the phone? Who responds to these uh, requests? And how do you populate um, the this side of the conversation when you're hearing from someone from Bolivia, for example? Well, um, for a girl that comes to the website and she is emailing in questions to us or emailing in that she needs some help, she's going to talk with one of the direct stand-up girl volunteers. Um, We recruit our volunteers from all over the world, and we have volunteers that live right here in Oregon. We have someone in Canada. We have someone in Texas, another girl in Ohio. So it just depends on... Um, actually what drew the volunteers to us, and a lot of them have come across Stand Up Girl somehow and want to be involved. And then when it comes to answering the 24-hour hotline, that is being manned by the Option Line staff at Heartbeat International. So 
they're partnering with us to make sure that we have someone who can be there 24-7 for these girls that are in need. And that's how our small team of seven or eight volunteers um, that are covering the, the, the emails and what's going on on social media are able to do that. And then when it comes to 24-7 phone calls in the chat sessions, Option Line is there with their trained staff to help support us in answering all those requests that come in. Just amazing. Now explain the, the name Stand Up Girl. Um, well, when, when Paul first came up with the idea, originally the foundation was called the Caring Foundation. And I, as they moved through the process of creating the website, they were really looking at what, what were they trying to accomplish? And they wanted these girls to be able to stand up and say, I can do this. I can finish high school or I can finish college or, you know, if this guy is going to leave me, I can still stand up and make it and I can do it. And so the thought was to just be able to get across a message of empowerment and say, you know, you had a thought in your mind of what your path in life was going to be. And this pregnancy has changed that, but it doesn't mean that everything's over. It's not the end of your journey. It's just a different path down that journey. And so we want you to be empowered and have the courage to stand up and say, I can still do this. Life is not over. Actually, a new life is about to begin. So let's rejoice in that. Let's find ways that you can find the hope that you need and the courage to go forward and say, I can do this and I can make it. And the result of this is I'm going, I'm bringing a beautiful child into this world at the same time. Yeah, just uh, just amazing. Now, I'm looking at uh, the foundation webpage, and it says our reach in 2021 per month, and correct me if I'm misreading this, 450,000? Yes. 450,000. Yes. And that's actual visitors coming to the website. And we average close to 3 million people that will actually interact with us on Facebook meaning they're commenting on the posts that we're sending out, they're sharing it with a friend, they're liking it, and that every time someone does that, it turns around and shares that into their feed for more people to see. And that's the beauty of social media, which in some ways can be so negative. For us, it's a positive because we know as we talk to people in the communities Everybody has been touched by somebody who has been in mm-hmm. a pregnancy that maybe wasn't planned for them. And so if we want to turn this into something that is a really a beautiful thing and a positive thing and say, you know what, it's not something that needs to be looked down in. And, you know, all of us are fallen people. None of us are perfect. And God said there's not going to be any perfect people. And so Maybe if something happened, it wasn't the best decision, but let's turn this into something that is a great decision and turn into something positive. And that could be maybe you raise your child and you become a child. Maybe you give that child life. And as you get closer to the date of birth, you realize you're not really prepared to be a parent. And then you look into adoption services with open adoption, just, um, becoming a change in the way that adoption's going on. There's so many more options for moms to still be a part of their child's life, but also have that child be in it with another family that also loves them. And now they have two moms that can help raise them. And, you know, we just, we just had a great video done by a family here in the Northwest and 
um, it was a beautiful adoption story of the mom was young and she decided to give her daughter up into an adoption situation. And several years into the girl's high school, she decided she wanted to find out more about her birth mom. And the birth mom and the adopted mom and the daughter have now spent many of holidays together and they're they all know each other's kids and the grandkids and they've just become a huge family and just really surrounded both the birth mom and the daughter in in arms of love. You know, we're all one family now and it's just a great way that even now with open adoptions, young moms have an opportunity to not oh, here's my child for adoption. I'm never going to see them again. Now you could be a part of your child growing up and your child gets the opportunity to know you and they get two moms out of the deal. Hmm. Now I have my computer screen open to the Stand Up Girl Foundation page because I know with an audience like the one you're speaking to today, many are pro-life, many are active in the pro-life movement and some don't know where they can plug in to help make a difference in this area. How can our listeners support the work of Stand Up Girl? Well, what you would would like to do is you want to go to StandUpGirlFoundation.org. That is our ministry partner website. The site that we minister to the girls with is called StandUpGirl.com. So StandUpGirlFoundation.org is for our ministry partners, and that is a place where you can not only go and understand more about our ministry, but it gives you the opportunity to come alongside us and help partner with us um, financially in prayer in coming to the office and helping us put materials together, um, becoming part of our volunteer team. Um, we, I just met today with a new volunteer who's going to come on board and help us answer letters for the girls. And there's so many different things that anyone can do based on, you know, what your situation is because everybody has something to offer. And our goal is to offer whatever services we can to these girls that are in need. Um, We have a minister partner in um, Eugene, who is also part of um, the doctors, the medical doctors that go around the world and help um, in different areas where they need medical advice. And he helped us last year get in contact with a um, pregnancy center that needed some support and needed a way to advertise their services And we were able to work with them and get um, this pregnancy center in Romania up on Stand Up Girl and also being able to get out there and help girls that are in need. Because we have found that even though someone might not be financially in a great spot, maybe they're having difficulty finding housing, they all have phones. They all have a way to get on the Internet. And so we want to be able to keep utilizing that tool to reach out to these girls who need help. Absolutely. Well, I found that um, God always has a redemptive purpose for everything that can be used for perverse reasons. And the Internet, having uh, access to the World Wide Web is just one example how God has a redemptive purpose for uh, for that um, Internet communication. So I'm just grateful that he redeems everything (laughs) that we have at our hands. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Don, I am so grateful for for you and the ministry, your leadership and uh, the the reach that you have all around the world. And I hope our listeners will check out the website, StandUpGirlFoundation.org, to find out how we can support um, this ministry. And keep in mind, StandUpGirl.com, which is where someone would go if they're looking for information and advice regarding a, a potential or a known pregnancy. Thanks so much for talking with us today. I appreciate it. 
Georgine, thank you so much, and God bless you and your family. You as well. Bye-bye. I just love this uh, woman of faith. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I wanted to spend the bulk of this short uh, segment reminding you of one thing and telling you about a couple of others that you may want to uh, participate in. The first is the fact that today is the opening uh, day in theaters for the C.S. Lewis movie, um, The Most Reluctant Convert, The Untold Story of C.S. Lewis. It's in theaters uh, all throughout the Portland metro area. Max McLean brought Jack Lewis vividly to life, so much so um, that uh, some have said, and I'm quoting, my wife, Kathy, and I, who have been so formed by him, were moved to tears. It's a tremendous performance from uh, by all accounts. I've seen him perform live several presentations as C.S. Lewis. He is uh, a consummate performer, and this movie, which opens in theaters today, uh, is one expression, and I think the first time he's, he's uh, committed his performance to film. It is produced by the Fellowship for Performing Arts, which is a tremendous organization. Uh, now you can find out more about the movie and to purchase your tickets at cslewismovie.com. Today is opening night, and I think through the 18th, it's not every day between now and then, but there are performances uh, sprinkled throughout the next few days where you can uh, see the movie, and I would highly recommend it. The Most Reluctant Convert, The Untold Story of C.S. Lewis. Again, uh, you can get your tickets and uh, theater information at cslewismovie.com. I also wanted to mention that the movie Sabina, Tortured for Christ, The Nazi Years, is going to be in theaters November 8th through the 10th. Now, Sabina, Tortured for Christ, The Nazi Years, is the story of how God's love transformed an ambitious atheistic hedonist uh, into one of the greatest Christian women of the 20th century experience the amazing true story that's redefined the concepts of love and forgiveness for millions around the world. I was sent a preview of the movie. I'm actually um, in the middle of watching it. Uh, It's very, very well done. And I hope that uh, people will um, watch the movie in great numbers. It is being produced by the voice of the martyrs. And uh, my guess is at some point there'll probably be a DVD available. That may also be the true, uh, the case with C.S. Lewis. But it's it's so helpful for organizations like Voice of the Martyrs and the Fellowship of Performing Arts if um, we support the work they're doing. And these are edifying, they're historic, they're um, beautifully done. And so I hope we will support these efforts. And in the process, we'll be encouraged and inspired. Again, in theaters, November 8th through the twenty. Uh, through the 10th, rather, Sabina, Tortured for Christ, The Nazi Years, uh, uh, produced by Voice of the Martyrs. For information, you can go to sabinamovie.com, and that's S-A-B-I-N-A, sabinamovie.com. And finally, um, the first ever 3D animated creationist documentary combines stunning visual effects, epic orchestration, and Thorough research to explore Genesis, the most ridiculed book of the Bible. Uh, Vivid CG animation intertwined with Ph.D. interviews that deliver an incredible thought-provoking synopsis of the origin, the origin rather, of mankind. It runs about 110 minutes. Each set includes 50 minutes of bonus computer-generated content uh, on a separate DVD. This is not going to be in theaters, but is available for purchase. 
There is an increasing attack on the Bible's teaching that God created the heavens and the earth. It is a battleground discussion uh, that most Christians are unprepared for, allowing audiences to experience Creation Week and to understand the science behind it. Genesis, Paradise Lost, reinforces how an intelligently designed universe matches both science and scripture, removing the supposed scientific stumbling block of evolution, which barricades many from hearing the gospel, has opened many hearts to the Creator. It features a number of scholars and PhDs, Dr. Vadi Bakum, Ken Ham, Ray Comfort, Dr. John uh, Baumgardner, Dr. Andrew Fabich, Dr. Danny Faulkner, Bodie Hodge, Chad Hovind, Charles Jackson, Dr. Jeremy Lyon, Dr. David Minton, Dr. Tommy Mitchell, Dr. Terry Mortensen, and Dr. Um, uh, Georgia Purdom. Now, the good news is you can actually uh, view the uh, trailer for this DVD at the Answers in Genesis website, and I would encourage you to do that. You get to see, you know, how well it's done and kind of the the uh, the way they approach the subject. I think you'll find it encouraging, inspiring, awe-inspiring, and uh, edifying uh, in the uh, in the process. Again, Answers in Genesis. You can go to the their website and you can actually purchase what is a DVD, the first ever 3D animated creationist documentary. Combining the stunning visual effects, epic orchestration, and thorough research to explore Genesis, the most ridiculed book of the Bible. Well, we're just about out of time here today, but I want to mention tomorrow, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Kyle Mann. He is the co-author of The Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness. Now, if you're at all familiar with the Babylon Bee, they are a group that f- uh, focuses on satire, and they do it very well. Well, they now have released a book the Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness, and we'll talk with Kyle Mann, the co-author, uh, tomorrow on the program. So I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with you when he joins me tomorrow on Thursday. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, engineering a portion of the program, as well as Chris Williams, also engineering a portion of the program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your extraordinary day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.